Well, good morning, church. If you are able, will you please stand with me for the reading of God's Word? As Lad mentioned, we are in Psalm 127. This is the Word of the Lord. A Song of Ascents of Solomon. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen stay awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are, children's of, are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who, who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Please be seated. I want to ask you a question to start this morning. What gets you out of bed in the morning? Now, I'm not talking about coffee, although that's very true for me. I'm not talking about the, your iPhone or your phone alarm going off repeatedly. I'm not even talking about the baby crying down the hall that needs your attention early hours. I'm talking about a, a deeper level. What is your deeper motivation? What, what gets you up and gets you going? Now, it may be thinking, okay, well, I've got, I've got bills to pay. I've got meals to cook. I've got exams to take. But if that's all the motivation that you have, to get going in the morning, to get on with your day, well, that, that's really not sustaining now, is it? What I want us to consider briefly this morning, what is it deep in your heart, deep in your core, that really gets you going? Why do you do what you do? Day in, day out, week in, week out. Y'all, because honestly, our motivations for work are often not good. In fact, our motivations for our work are often even rooted in sin. So it's good from time to time to try and peel back the onion layers of our heart. Right? Our hearts are very much like onions. They've got layers. You can peel the layer back and peel the layer back. And often, in reality, there is, there's a sin beneath the sin. Especially for the recurring sin struggles in our lives. You think of, why, why do I keep coveting? Why uh, do I continue to lose my temper? Why do I keep on lusting? Why do I continue to not trust in God the way He has commanded me and told me to do? Well, I like how Tim Keller puts it in his book, Counterfeit Gods. He talks about the deep idols of the heart. and He lists out four of them. There may be more, but these are really, I think, very comprehensive. He talks about the idol of power. And the corresponding fear of weakness. He talks about the idol of approval and the corresponding fear of rejection. He talks about the idol of comfort and the fear of suffering. He talks about the idol of control and the fear of uncertainty. Idols like these can be powerful motivators, but chasing these counterfeit gods is like trying to grab onto a vapor. It's going to leave us exhausted. It's going to leave us completely spent. It's going to leave us still unsatisfied. 
These counterfeit gods always present themselves like they are just within reach, just within grasp. And as soon as we get there, they just get that little bit further out. But our psalm this morning, as we continue in our series, our summer series, Songs for the Road, a study of the Psalms of Ascent. Psalm 127 is is a psalm by a guest contributor of sorts. One who lived his life as such an experiment, looking for meaning, for purpose, and for fulfillment in everything that the world has to offer, as he put it, under the sun. This is King Solomon, the son and heir of King David, the famously wise king of the Old Testament, the builder of the temple, author of much of the book of Proverbs, author of the book of Ecclesiastes. In fact, I would argue that Psalm 127 reads much like a very brief flip side to the entire book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is 12 chapters going through all the many nuances of what might give life meaning and purpose. And he's working through all of these options to find that they all come up short. Pleasure, success, wisdom, work. Through it all, the author of Ecclesiastes, who most believe is Solomon, he finds through it all, he finds over and over again that life under the sun is vanity of vanities. It's vain, it's vain, it's vain. And only life under heaven has any value or purpose to it. The king known for wisdom is making the same point here in our psalm this morning, in Psalm 127. And it's the same point that he makes throughout the entire book of Ecclesiastes. Love the book of Ecclesiastes. We did it as a student ministry study this past spring. If you haven't read the book, I'd highly encourage you to go read it. It's not that long and it makes a good read but what he does from a more negative side in ecclesiastes he's now doing from a more positive angle here in psalm 127 but he's saying the same point and what he's saying is this life only works when it is anchored in and built upon god himself indeed god is and must be at work in every area of our lives if they are to have any meaning or any lasting purpose Solomon wrote this wisdom psalm not to focus on praise and thanksgiving, as so many psalms are. He wrote it not to lament sin or distress, as so many psalms are. He wrote not to recount Israel's history of God had been at work, as so many psalms are. But he wrote this psalm to help us see how life is, or rather how life ought be. He draws from common, everyday experiences to focus the light of truth so that we can see the glory of God in our everyday lives. Now at first you may wonder, well how how does a psalm like this fit in with, with this idea of songs for the road? These pilgrim songs, these pilgrim songs that the, the, that the travelers would sing on their way up to Jerusalem for the high holy days, the feast days. These songs for the road for us who are disciples following Jesus to sing as we are on the road. Why would a pilgrim headed to Jerusalem sing a song like this one? Well, simply put, to remind themselves and to remind each other that most of life is really quite ordinary. I think you know this to be true. Kind of that we have these watershed moments in our lives, the high mountaintop experiences and the low valley experiences, but the vast majority of life is in that mundane, ordinary, unremarkable middle. 
our life on the road as disciples is very much the case. You'll never underestimate the importance of, of corporate worship, of what we do here on Sunday of gathering to worship God together, of, of Scripture being read and preached in the sacraments and, and, and the idea of rest, Sabbath rest. But we don't, as Lad mentioned, we spend most of our lives not here. Most of our lives is not gathered together in corporate worship. Most of our lives is not on a retreat or a conference or camp or mission trip. Most of our lives is rather ordinary. Being a Christian pilgrim involves so much more than just showing up for worship on Sundays. For the Christian, life on the road encompasses all of life. And what Solomon wants us to learn from this psalm is that life without the Lord is empty. This psalm does not say not to work, but it says how to work and how to rest in real peace. So I have three points I want to work through. First is that God is and must be at work to build the house. The second point is God is and must be at work to build the house. That is not a typo. And the third point is we can rest because God is at work. So the first point, God is and must be at work to build the house. Looking at these first two verses, work without the Lord is empty. That's his main point of these first couple of verses. There's a key word that he uses three times. That word is vain. It echoes here, reminding us that work without God is meaningless. Twice in verse 1, where he gives us two reminders. The first reminder is about the builder. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. If God isn't in the work, whatever work that might be, whatever work it is you do, it's empty. Those who build and labor and toil, work is grueling, but hard work is no substitute for divine involvement and divine presence. You may work hard at your job, and that's a good thing. We're going to talk about that. But working hard is no substitute for working in the Lord. The second reminder focuses on this idea of a city watchman. Now, the ancient world didn't have advanced satellite systems and alarms and motion sensors and night vision cameras that many of us have on our homes and properties. They had sentries, watchmen who stood on the city walls, keeping watch of what's going on around them. It was an important job because the city's security depended upon their vigilance. But the watchman's alertness, the watchman doing his job well, is no guarantee of security if the Lord was not already watching over the city. Alert lookouts are no substitute for God. So let's be careful now to think, what does the text say, but also what does the text not say? It doesn't say that builders shouldn't build and watchmen shouldn't watch. Right? Solomon stresses our God-given responsibility, but he unites it with complete dependence upon the Lord. Houses don't get built without builders. I know this church for many years prayed for this building, for this facility. And God answered those prayers. But God answered those prayers through ordinary fundraising and ordinary contractors and ordinary uh, builders who came in and built this place. But God was at work building. Cities aren't secure without watchmen. 
But neither builders nor watchmen can adequately fulfill their responsibilities without reliance upon the Lord because building and keeping ultimately and always depend upon Him. So flowing out of those two reminders, the reminder to the builder, and that is whatever work you do, the reminder to the watchman, whatever kind of security you may provide. And this building has security. We have alarm systems. We have locks. We have cameras. We have our sheriff's deputy who we hire every Sunday to come be here. These are good things we do. But if, if, unless the Lord is watching and guarding and protecting, all of them are in vain. They will not protect us in and of themselves. So flowing out of those two reminders, verse 2 of our psalm gives us a charge. If you believe that work is vain without God's activity, you should put that into practice in your own life. Verse 1 describes the construction worker and the security guard, but verse 2 describes the workaholic. What does the workaholic do? He works himself to exhaustion by getting up early and going to bed late. Henry Ford actually said it this way. Of course, the the inventor of the Model T, the bringer of the automobile to the masses over 100 years ago. Henry Ford put it this way. He said, I don't think a man can ever leave his business. He ought to think of it by day and dream of it by night. Thinking men know that work is the salvation of the race, physically, morally, and socially. Work does not just make us a living, it gives us a life. How many of you work like that? And this is exactly what Solomon is warning against. Because this idea with Henry Ford was not new to him. This seems to be our default. We look to work as our salvation. We look to work for our purpose and our fulfillment. And this kind of relentless activity is a recipe for disaster. But it's also an indication of idolatry. The people described in this verse work themselves to exhaustion and starve themselves of any true satisfaction because they are looking to their jobs, they're looking to their work, they're looking to what they can buy to give them meaning and to give them purpose. Because they're chasing one of those counterfeit gods. These people end up eating the bread of anxious toil, as it says in verse 2. Now, of course, the the food that they eat from their work and their overwork, but it's, it's more than just the literal food that they're buying. Bread is what you fill yourself with. You eat bread to satisfy your appetite, your physical appetite. But if you try to find satisfaction in your work, you'll only be filling yourself up with nervous, worried, fearful work. If you give yourself too much to your work, it becomes your idol, and you will never really be able to enjoy it. How is it that we're really able to enjoy our work, enjoy our labors? But it becomes worrisome labor and anxious toil, rather than the idea of an, in, uh, an enjoyable calling, a fulfilling calling. There's that word toil that's used here. It's actually the same Hebrew word that God used all the way back in Genesis 3. When God was describing now the effects of sin on the world and on Eve and on Adam. Actually in 3.16, the word that God is describing is like now it is in pain and anguish that you will bring forth children. It's the same word for anxious 
toil. Sorrow, pain, toil, all the same word. Not, not, we're no longer talking about good, hard, honest work at a good, kingdom-filling job. We're talking about curse-filled, painful toil. Y'all, what the world today calls hustling and calls winning, grinding, but eventually it will leave you with nothing. It will leave you empty. Y'all, work is a good thing. Don't hear me say work is not a good thing. Work is a good thing. We are called to work. Back in Genesis 1 and 2, we see actually that you can over... Looking, you can dig more out of this than should be there. But God gave Adam a job. He gave him work before he gave him a wife. Work is important. Work is a good thing. We're called to work. However, we are not to find our purpose or find our fulfillment in our work. So you have these two potential errors. You have the workaholism. I'm going to look to work for my salvation. I'm going to look to work for my meaning and my purpose. That's all I'm going to be fixated on. That's the Henry Ford idea. Or you can be the one who says, you know what? I realize the error of that. I realize that salvation is not to be found in my work. So you know what I'm going to do? Nothing. It's all in vain anyway. All this work, all this labor is just going to wear you out and, and break you down. And for what? For nothing. I'm going to go sit on a beach somewhere. That sounds pretty good, right? But workaholism, this idea that work will bring us fulfillment, realizing that there's so much more to life than just winning, but laziness, the, the idea that you, know, you can't work your way to happiness, so why try? Well, God gives another way. Solomon, here in 127, Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes, all throughout Proverbs, he gives us the proper view of work. Ecclesiastes chapter 5 talks about the idea of two hands full of toil, that's not good. But he talks about one handful of work. The fourth commandment, Exodus chapter 20, explicitly says six days you shall work, one day you shall rest. There's a balance. Not just a physical time balance, though that's an important part of it, but this balance of having that proper understanding of work. Our identity is not in our work. Work is a good thing. God has given us abilities and skills and opportunities Work is a good thing, but it's not our identity. I love the movie Chariots of Fire. It's like 40-something years old now, right? But it talks about uh, the 1924 Olympics and Eric Liddell and Harold Abrams. Now, Eric Liddell uh, was raised as the, the child of missionaries in China, but he was a British citizen, so he ran and competed for the British Olympic team. But he's talking with his friend Harold Abrams, and they're both track stars in the 1924 Olympics. Harold Abrams throws out the idea and says, I have 10 seconds to prove my worth. He contrasts that with Eric Little's perspective. Where Eric Little says, God made me for China. Because he had a vision and a heart to go back to China to be a missionary. To bring the gospel to the Chinese people. 100 years ago. The effects of which are still being seen. The church in China is growing rapidly, despite fierce persecution. Praise God. But Eric Little says, God made me for China, but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. Do we have that kind of perspective on our work? That kind of perspective on our ability and on our skill and the opportunity God has given us? It doesn't define me, but when I do it, I feel God's pleasure. 
because God gave me the ability to do this. There's a guy named William Plummer, who was a great Old Testament commentator and uh, author of, of a commentary on the Psalms. And he asked this question of, how many of us sleep and wake up Even though we are Christians, even though we would confess Christ, we believe in Jesus, but how many of us go to sleep and wake up like atheists? We go to bed and we wake up in all the worries as if God didn't exist. Thinking that we can somehow maybe worry or think our way to security. We can worry and overthink our way to fruitful labor apart from God. Or do we work and then trust in Him to establish the work of our hands. In Psalm 90, Moses prays, Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Moses was depending on God to supply the prospering of his labor. Do you go to sleep and do you wake up like an atheist? Or do we go to sleep and we wake up like Moses? Trusting in God to establish the work of our hands. Again, contrast this picture of the man in Ecclesiastes 4 with two hands full of toil, two hands full of work. It's worthless to live life as a workaholic because God gives sleep to his beloved. In verse 2 there. For he gives to his beloved sleep. Now when Psalm writes that, now when, when Solomon writes it in the Psalm, he very very well may be speaking about himself. In 2 Samuel 12, Solomon himself is called Jedidiah, beloved of the Lord. And it's the same phrase, same wording here in Psalm 127. But y'all, here's the thing. Every single one of us, we belong to Jesus. Every single one of us is Jedidiah. Every single one of us is beloved of the Lord. Every believer is beloved in Christ, chosen in Christ, loved with an everlasting, never-ending, never-giving-up, never-failing love. And God gives sleep to His beloved children. Sleep is the Father's good gift. Again, back to the beginning, back to Genesis. Consider Genesis 1, the creation account. Each day, there's a pattern through all six days. God created, God saw it was good, And God rested, and there was evening, and there was morning the first day. There was evening, and there was morning the second day, and so on. Throughout the Old Testament, all the way from the beginning, and even in Jewish culture today, the day begins at sunset. In our culture, in our mind of thinking, the day begins when our alarm clock goes off, when we wake up in the morning. But in the Jewish reckoning, in the Old Testament way of thinking, as God put forth, the day begins at sunset. So really the first thing you do in a day is go to sleep. And how useful are you when you go to sleep? Now some of y'all are more useful than others. My wife, Linda, gave me a hard time, justifiably, uh, when our children were little because I was very difficult to wake up in the middle of the night. Kids would be crying. He said, go, go feed the baby. Okay. Especially with Evelyn. The oldest, the oldest kids, they, we have no idea what we're doing. Right? I don't know how they survive. But when we are asleep, we're proving, we're reminding ourselves we are not indispensable. We can stop 
We can go to sleep. We can rest. We can Sabbath. And the world doesn't stop spinning. It all doesn't fall apart. We need rest. We need sleep. Sleep and rest show our finiteness. They are regular reminders of our limitedness. You can go to sleep. You can take a day off. You can take a vacation. And it all doesn't fall apart. Because God is the one who is at work. God is the one who does not slumber or sleep. God is the one working. God is the one watching. Now this should be a great comfort to us, but actually the reality is some of us don't like this truth. We would much rather think, and we like the idea that we are so needed, so indispensable, that we don't dare take any time off. The company will fall apart, the church will fall apart, the family will fall apart if I stop for even a moment. We like feeling so needed. But we need to see sleep and rest as a gift from God. Not an intrusion into our schedules, not, a, not simply a mere necessity or a waste of time, but as a gift from God. So the first thing we learn in this psalm is that our, our creating and our conserving, as God called and gave dominion to Adam and now we, also to us, in our building and our protecting and our cultivating and our guarding, our labor and our search for security are all pointless and restless without the Lord, apart from the Lord. And unless the Lord builds and unless the Lord watches. But we see that in Him, when we recognize and depend upon His building, His watching, work is meaningful. So much more that even the most mundane, ordinary tasks have eternal significance when done in Him. That leads us to the second point, which is that God is and must be at work to build the house. Now, there is a typo in the bulletin. It's not here, but actually there is youth group tonight. We're having a student ministry. We're having a, we're having a, a swim party at the Rhymer. So if you're in middle school or high school, join us tonight. But the, the, the outline is not a typo. And I think it's intentional, actually, that Solomon uses this imagery the way he does. This image of building a house and then of a quiver full of children. And he actually, I think Solomon is recalling an event that happened to his father David when he was king. 2 Samuel 7, the Davidic covenant. David desired to build a house for God, a temple. David lived in a fine palace, but the dwelling place of the Lord in the center of Jerusalem was in a tent, the tabernacle. Now the tabernacle made sense when God's people were wandering in the wilderness for 40 years where they had to pack up the entire campment and move every so often. The, the portable tabernacle as the place of worship made sense then. Now perhaps some of you long-time Church of the Redeemer folks can remember the Church in a Box days of packing up every Sunday and unpacking and packing up. You know, this is how God's people would have felt as they were wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. Pack it up, okay, bring it back out. Pack it up, bring it back out. But now they're, they're in the promised land. David has been established as king. Jerusalem is established as the center and the capital. So David has this idea that why is the Lord living in a tent when I'm dwelling in this fine palace? I'm going to build a house for God, a real proper building, a temple. And he goes to Nathan the prophet. Nathan says, that's a great idea. Go do that, David. And then God comes to Nathan and says, I didn't tell you to say that. Here's what you go back and tell David. And we read about this in 2 Samuel 7 particularly in verse 11. God says, David, no, 
you will not build me a house. And actually, David, I will build you a house. Not a building house, but a lineage. Children, grandchildren, and so on. Ultimately, fulfilled in the great, 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 great grandson of King David, King Jesus himself. The true, eternal, greater king. The king who will sit on the throne forever. Whose kingdom will never be shaken. Whose kingdom will never end. But this psalm is not just for King David. It's for all of us. And as we think about children, you may be reading through these five verses and go, wait a minute. Verse 2, he goes straight from, he gives his beloved sleep in the end of verse 2 to the beginning of verse 3. Children are a heritage from the Lord. If you've been a parent, or if you've been around children for any length of time, you probably know sleep and children don't go together. The Lord gives his beloved sleep and he gives them children. This doesn't seem... But Derek Kinder, in his commentary on the psalm, says it this way. He says, it's not untypical of God's gifts that they are first liabilities. It is not untypical of God's gifts that they are first liabilities or at least responsibilities before they become obvious assets. The greater the promise, the more likely these sons will be a handful before they're a quiverful. Parents, I hope that encourages you. The greater the promise, the more likely that they will be that they will be a heritage from the Lord. These children who are a heritage from the Lord will be a handful before they are a quiver full. Testing and trial often come before blessing and reward. That's how God works. So you may be thinking your life is not this idyllic, perfect little Norman Rockwell picture of a family gathered and everything's just lovely and our kids get along and it's wonderful. Oftentimes there involves children biting and hitting each other and as they grow older, discipline issues and whatever. But we trust in the Lord and we lean not on our own understanding. That He is working out His purpose and in the end He will vindicate Himself. God is at work and like Job we will say at the end of Job where Job comes and says this great verse in verse uh, Job 42 verses 5 and 6 where Job says, I had heard of you but now I see you and that you are good. I love the language that Solomon is using for children here. It's like arrows in the hands of a warrior are the children of one's youth. The arrows are not given to the skilled warrior so they can stay in the quiver. The, the purpose of an arrow is to be launched. Arrows are not meant to stay in the quiver. If the arrow stays in the quiver, it's not doing what it was meant to do. Arrows are not to meant to stay in the quiver. They, yes, there is a process. There is a process of drawing the arrow out of the quiver, placing the arrow on the bow, pulling back the string, taking good aim, and launching intentionally. There's a long process to that. But we need to remember one thing, one important thing. It says, like arrows in the hands of the warrior are the children. Well, throughout Scripture, who is the warrior? Now, we have some secondary warriors, like David. 
But really, who is the warrior of Scripture? It is God himself. In Exodus 15.3, the praise song of God's people after passing through the Red Sea, the Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Psalm 24, 7 and 8 says, Lift up your head, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Y'all, if we have children, it is of God's grace and mercy that we do. You didn't earn it. You don't deserve it. And don't think that because you have more children than someone else that you are somehow better. I'm not talking about (laughs) y'all. It's all of God's grace. It's all of God's mercy. Our children are not given to us simply that we would hold on to them. They're not given to us that we would build our lives upon them. They were not given to us that we would make them in our image. Our children are not given to us so that we would look to find our fulfillment and our purpose and our meaning in them, in our family in what they become. We see this in culture over and over again, not just out there, but in the church too. Parents building their lives upon their children, finding their meaning, their purpose in their children and in their family. But y'all, we work. We work prayerfully, we work dependently, raising our children so that one day God would accomplish something amazing for them, with them. That God would take hold of them and use them like an arrow in the hands of a warrior to be launched as a weapon for his greatness, as a weapon for his kingdom, to accomplish something amazing that only he can accomplish. So that his name would be name known, so that he would be great, so that the name of Jesus would be proclaimed. That is why our children are in the quiver. Not to stay in the quiver, but for the sake of the kingdom. And y'all, we don't get to hold on to that quiver. And tell God when our arrows are ready to be launched. And we don't get to hold on to that quiver as parents or grandparents and tell God how we want this arrow to be launched and how we want it to be used. Do not underestimate the power and impact that your children can have on the kingdom right now. Our children, our students, are not the church of tomorrow. They're the elders and pastors and deacons tomorrow. They're the church right now. If they know Jesus and trust in Him, they are the church now. I just spent one of my favorite weeks of the year at the Rush Conference at Perimeter Church in Atlanta. 700 students worshiping God together, praising God together, but entirely student-led. Students doing amazing things for the kingdom, big and small, glamorous and mundane Students living out, being launched for the sake of the kingdom in worship, in teaching, in serving, in leading. Next week, we're going to have dozens of middle school and high school students here at this church serving at Vacation Bible School, leading our children, pointing them towards Jesus, making the gospel known to them. Bring the gospel to the next generation of our church. For all of us, whether we have biological children or adoptive children, or we are all covenant parents. Every time we do a baptism of a covenant child, we have the last question is for us. It's for all of us. 
Do you promise to assist and pray for these parents and pray for this family and assist them in the nurture of the Lord, of this child in the Lord? This quiver is not just for the parents, it's for the entire household of God. So briefly, the last point is, we rest because God is at work. Again, we have these idols, these counterfeit gods, the idol of power, the idol of approval, the idol of comfort, the idol of control. These idols won't let you rest. If you're worshiping and serving and chasing their idols, whether you're talking about building actual buildings, building empires of some other kind, building and raising a family, if you're building them with these counterfeit gods as your mean and purpose, you will never rest. You will always be trying to grab onto that vapor. But a day is coming when the Lord Jesus will return. The work as we know it will be over. Toil will be over. But what will matter on that day is that we find everything in Christ. Our meaning, our purpose, our everything is in Him. And your life at work, your life at home should lead you to seek Jesus. To build upon Him. We build our work upon Him. We build our family upon Him. Empty labor and or a full quiver, both should drive you to God. To put simply, Jesus is the answer to all of it. We have a fear of weakness, a fear of rejection, a fear of suffering, a fear of uncertainty. But Jesus is the one who took all that upon himself. Isaiah 53 talks so much about this. Jesus was despised. Jesus bore our griefs. Jesus carried our sorrows. Jesus was stricken, smitten, and afflicted. Jesus was crushed. Jesus was oppressed. Jesus was rejected. So that you would not be. He took upon all of these things so that we would not be these things. 2 Corinthians 5.21 Paul takes it and sums it up this way. For our sake, He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the, right, we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus took on the ultimate weakness, rejection, suffering, and abandonment, and He gives you rest. Rest beyond a good nap. Rest beyond a vacation. Rest knowing we are secure in God. There's an old Puritan named Walter Marshall who said it this way. The way to get holy endowments and the qualifications necessary to frame and enable us to live the Christian life is to receive them out of the fullness of Christ by fellowship with Him and that we may have fellowship and, and that we may have fellowship we must be in Christ and have Christ Himself in us by mystical union with Him. We have union with Christ through His death and resurrection, through His finished, accomplished work. We have fully accomplished the work of salvation. It's been done for us. We are secure. Our place in God is secure. God loves you fully in Jesus Christ. He cannot love you any more than He already does because He loves you perfectly and loves you fully. And He will never love you any less than He does right now. So rest in that truth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray that we would work and rest well. That we would work in all the labors you've given us, both in our jobs and in our homes, in the church and in the raising of our families. We would work as unto you. 
whatever we do, we work fully for you. And Lord, we know that you are the one who gives rest. You are the one who gives full, true, complete rest. Help us to rest in you. It is in Christ's name we pray. Amen.